Good evening, kiddos. It is Friday night, 23rd of June, and we are officially into summer, two days. So, I'm up here for another 12 days, and I'm going to see how far I can get in this book. Uh, I asked you guys to think about a few things based on the first couple of chapters of the Sinking City by Christine Cohen. What do you think? What do you think so far? Christine is doing the same thing she did in the last book of hers we read. She's painting a life with vivid characters, but with a slightly different set of rules for reality, right? Like in this book, it's set in Venice, which is a real place in France, right? It's in France. Come on, help me out here. But it's got some really different things that are not part of our reality, like magical underwater creatures called Seleni and uh, magic spells that are cast just for like I don't know, utility purposes, but there was one that was working at her dad's uh, warehouse place to keep the water from splashing into the into the storerooms. And there was magicians present at uh, Leona's birthday party that moved a chair for her as she was falling backwards so the chair would catch her. And there was one other place I think they talked about a magic spell, just kind of matter of fact. Oh, how about the uh, magic that was used to suspend the candles in midair near the chandelier for her birthday party? So anyways, different rules for this reality here in the Sinking Cities world. But hey, we'll go with it because it's a fiction book, right? And that's what makes it interesting. Let me get to, well, let's talk about some of the characters here. The first, first we met Leona. She's a sister. She's taking violin lessons with Master Anselmi. Is he a nice guy or not a nice guy? Kind of a, kind of a bum, huh? No compassion. Wouldn't let her talk to uh, her friend. Who came looking for her. Benito. We have Olivia. A loyal older sister I think. Who helps her out. Helps her get away from her. Uh, violin lesson. Who else do we have? We have Benito. And his little sister V. And. Then who else do we have? We have Leona's father. And what's his name? I can't find it. He, somebody's probably be, probably saying it right now. The name of her father's boat was the Mas, La Masella that sank. Oh, their last name is Carvati. And they're considered patricians. And I think that must just be another variation of the word patriarch, some older rich family of the city with a lot of influence and uh, wealth and power. And sure enough, her dad was trying to get onto this 10 person city board. Uh, let's keep going here. Who else are we going to be introduced to? Oh, Giacomo is her father's assistant that was sent to the trial in her father's place. Giovanni, the examiner, was the guy who got in huge trouble because the Micella, um sank and he, 
They tried to blame him for not inspecting the ship good enough. What are some other people? Lots of servants. Leona even had a dressing servant. Dressing maid. Uh, she has another sister that passed away. Do you remember what her name was? Julia. Just mentioned in passing. She has brothers too. Gabrielle, that's her oldest brother. Theodore, whom she shares a special uh, bird. What was the bird? Oh, pigeon. A pet pigeon, Rella. She's got a cage in her room and a cage in Theodore's room. And Rella the carrier pigeon goes back and forth. And they dress her up all fancy for her birthday party. Did they say her father's name? I just can't find it here, kiddos. Sure enough, her father did have enough power to get Giovanni's Giovanni pardoned. But something really weird happens right at the end. Her father, who's a powerful, influential, rich man, is acting super strange. And they're at the party and he's very pre preoccupied. And he says, Leona. And his eyes hold panic and not anger. I hope you know that I love you. And Leona is taken aback because he rarely says that to her. And then she's trying to get her dad to let her go to... Uh, Florence or Paris and she says does that does that mean that you'll let me go and he says I can't and then what happens the stinking Cellini crash the party but not before Valerio tries to get close to Leona and she brushes him off. And then she falls backwards and then meets the two magicians who cast a little spell to slide the chair under her. And then the Selene come. And then the same stinky King Selene. Selene. What do you want to call him? Selene or Selene? I'll call him Seleni, because that's what I called him last night. So anyways, the, the master Seleni grabs Leona and won't let her go. And the Seleni gives a little speech and says that we have not broken the terms of our laws, of the laws of our treaty. Our invitation to the ball never came, but we were invited nonetheless. It's the 16th birthday of Leona Carvati, and according to the agreement I made with her father 20 years ago, I have come to claim her. And poor Leona, can you imagine somebody saying, oh yeah, um, Lily, uh, we're taking you away right now because your dad agreed to give you away when you were 16. I mean, that would be, well, I don't know, depending on who it was. No, I'm just kidding. In all circumstances, that would be very, very bad and traumatic. Father, I cry, searching for his face in the stricken crowd. I find him on the musician's platform, not ten yards away. He's beside my brothers. He's holding them back. The moon cuts through the window and throws a wane of light across their faces. Theodore and Gabrielle look shocked and angry, but my father's expression is far worse. Resignation. Okay, so chapter three. Father, I call out again. 
but he doesn't look at me. Panic bubbles in my chest. He has to tell the Cellini that they've made a mistake. He would never make such a bargain. He would never sell his daughter to monsters. Please, Papa! My father winces, then lifts his chin with a determined look that gives me hope. No, he says to the Cellini. You had your chance to claim her when she was a baby, and you didn't. Our deal has expired. So, it is true. The floor spins beneath my feet. The Cellini nail, the Cellini's nail traces my cheek down to my throat, resting on my fluttering pulse. The deal shall only, the deal shall only expire if she dies. You said you would come for her on her birthday, and you didn't. I did not say which birthday, the Cellini interrupts. Theodore jumps off the platform, his dagger unsheathed. The blade wavers, but his eyes are clear. Olivia stands beside him, pale and fierce, gripping a candlestick. I shake my head at them. The Cellini are water-wielders. Knives are a poor match against their magic. My father spreads his hands in a conciliatory gesture. Let's change the terms of the bargain, then. Something more agreeable. What would you like? I have a ship in port that you can take, along with all its goods. I will have the maiden, as it as is my right. Nothing else. She's not yours to take, Theodore snaps. He lunges at the Cellini, whose free hand flicks up, and the water in the cups of the closest guests arches out and spills under the floor, forming a wave under my brother's feet. He slips, arms flailing helplessly, then lands on the floor on his back. The dagger flies out of his hand, snatched up by hundreds of water droplets, spinning and spinning until the blade hangs like a star above us, the tip pointed down. It hovers in the air and plunges toward his face. A scream rips from my chest. The dagger stops, pressing into Theodore's neck so that a bead of blood trickles down his skin. He is shaking, his palms pressed flat against the floor. He does not look seventeen. Fear has curved his face into a child's again. One move from the Cellini, and my brother dies. Please don't hurt him, I whisper. The Cellini sighs. Humans are so unreasonable. We come in peace under fair law, and you act as if we are the criminals. Olivia hasn't moved. She still holds the candlestick high, but her eyes are wide. She is crying. So am I, I realize. I shake my head, and she lowers her arm. You're not criminals, Gabriel says. His arms are crossed, and his voice drips with scorn. You're monsters, rotting away in your underwater tomb. Well, you can't have Leona. Take father's new bargain, water scum. The Cellini Lord turns his unblinking stare on me. Hereby you are a witness. Your family has chosen their fate. He tilts his head back and opens his mouth as if he were drinking the air. Every Cellini straightens at once, their mouths stretched wide, bearing row upon row of pointed teeth. A hissing noise fills the room, rising like a swarm of hornets. The chandelier shivers, crystals clinking together, and the room starts to shake. A crack breaks the plaster and slithers up the wall. Theodore's muffled cry rises above the din.
The blade is digging deeper. His throat is wet with blood. I wrench my arm free and step forward, holding my hands high. Stop! I scream, and in unison the Cellini shut their mouths. The room falls still. Let my brother go, I say. Then we can talk. The dagger clatters to the floor. Olivia rushes to Theodore's side and presses a napkin to his neck. There is nothing to talk about, the Cellini lord replies. Are you going to kill me? I will keep my voice calm. I will not show fear. He barks out a laugh again. Why would I wait sixteen years to kill you? He steps toward me, so close that I can see dead skin sloughing off around his mouth as he speaks. Bile rises in my throat. You were promised to me. I have prepared a place for you as the mother of our new race. Mother, I whisper. Our race is dying, he says flatly. You will save us from extinction. Father comes up beside me. His face is tight with pain. Leona, I didn't realize. I'd hoped. I'd prayed they'd forgotten. Forgotten. Forgotten that they'd bought me. Now the way that Father has looked at my entire life makes sense. Not like I would break, but like I was never really his. He stares down at his hands. I never thought it would happen like this. What did you trade me for? The words are trapped behind my numb lips. Part of me feels far away, as if my mind is trying to escape and leave my body to its fate. The room is terribly cold, and I can't stop trembling. The Cellini Lord waits, his yellow eyes boring into mine. No one can help me. Our contracts with the monsters are binding. I look at my mother, my sister, my brothers, the tangle of guests hanging on every word. What would happen if I tried to run? The Cellini would attack. My brothers would fight them. People would die, and their blood would be on my hands. I barely nod. It's the smallest of gestures, but it's enough. My sister makes a small, strangled sound. Come, the Cellini says, and extends a pale hand that I have no choice but to take. Okay, kiddos, I have to stop here. I need to point out something, some commonality that we have with uh, the last book. Remember all of the really subtle agreements that, um, oh goodness, what was her name? Tell me I've forgotten it so quickly. The heroine from The Winter King. Come on, kiddos, I'm tired here, help me. Uh, hold on one second. Okay, I got it now. Cora, I'm so sorry, I could not remember our uh, heroine's name from The Winter King. And I had to pause the podcast for a little bit anyways, because my uh, sweet mate jumped in the shower again at this time, which she never showers in the evenings, or usually showers first off when he gets back to the room. But anyways, um, yeah, so Cora... Um, she made some agreements too, and she made some trades, remember? And it wasn't even like a, they weren't like big verbal things, they were just like, 
Okay, yep, I understand. Um, but anyways, I think that's a common theme with uh, Christine Cohen here, is like this whole idea of a trade taking place. So, back to the book. I barely nod. It's the smallest of gestures, but it's enough. My sister makes a small, strangled sound. Come, the Cellini says, and extends a pale hand that I have no choice but to take. Wait! My mother pushes forward to stand beside me, clasping my other hand. She, too, is shaking. Stay. Enjoy the feast and the music. Let us have one more night with our daughter. We cannot stay in Venice past the tenth hour, the Cellini says impatiently. My mother doesn't back down. The rules can be bent just this once. The Carvati influence is strong. No, the creature snaps. She comes with us now. My mother draws herself up, and her face is as fierce as Olivia's. I gave birth to Leona in the eleventh hour of night. She says, it is not yet her birthday, and therefore, by your rules, you can't have her yet. The Cellini Lord hisses, but his grip on my arm loosens. You may return first thing in the morning. My mother holds my hand so tight that it hurts. Her voice is ice. Now get out. As suddenly as they arrived, the Cellini are gone. Servants sweep like ghosts through the room, clearing the floor of broken glass. The fragrance of Banksy of rises, and jasmine soon covers the smell of decay. One by one, the guests trickle out. No one says goodbye, as if it might embarrass us to acknowledge what just happened. I am shockingly unavoidable in this dress, yet it seems we've invited the most skilled actors in Venice. They collect their composure and, and their belongings and slip around us as if we're not even there. Soon, my family and I are alone in the middle of the room. No one speaks at first. Theodore grimaces as Olivia dabs at the wound on his neck. His previously white collar is a deep crimson that's drying into brown. He keeps glancing at me and then away, his brown hair slipping from its fasten from its fastener strand by strand. My mother finally releases my hand and dabs discreetly at her face. My father stares down at his hands, his feet, the floor. His shoulders curve, and I remember Master Anselmi's words, like a sinking gondola. Father looks as if he is sinking. Part of me wants to comfort him. Most of me is so horrified by what he's done that I can hardly stand to be near him. You made a deal with them? Gabriel asks at last. His face is as hard as a marble statue. Just once. Father looks at his oldest son. When you were three... We were in a boat on our way to Murano, and you fell overboard. Do you remember? Now, no, how could you? Gabriel's face darkens, but he says nothing. Father continues, I dove in after you. I kept diving and diving, trying to find you. And then the Cellini brought you back up to our boat. You'd swallowed so much water, you were as good as dead. Father clears his throat. They said they'd bring you back to life if I promised to give them my firstborn daughter. 
I was saving my son in exchange for a child I'd never met that I might never even have. Father's eyes plead for me to understand, but I look away, sickened. Did you know? Theodore asks mother. Her mouth curves down at the edges. Not until after it was done. Would you have stopped him, I wonder? Would you have let your firstborn son die? I have never felt so expendable. I want to ask why she bothered with my education at all. Why I had to take so many hours of music lessons. But I can guess the answer. Mother, with all her scolding and commands, held out hope that the Cellini would never come. Father let me do as I pleased because he had already given up. I thought, Father says, then stops, tries again. I thought he would just take her away at birth. I thought maybe I wouldn't even see. She'd just be gone. We'd say she died. I didn't think they would be so cruel as to... How hard that must have been for... How hard that must have been for you, Theodore snaps. Theodore, Mother says sharply. All around us, the servants are clearing away the food and dishes as if it were the end of any normal gala. A tiger-striped cat jumps onto one of the tables and snatches a piece of chicken. Can't you do something, Papa? Olivia asks. She is the only one who will look at him. Father's shoulders sink further. I've tried to find a way out for years, but they didn't want anything else. And bargains with Cellini are as binding as human ones. You could have left Venice, Gabriel says. A fire lights up in his eyes. We still could. We could leave tonight. The Cellini can't survive out of water. We could live inland, far from any rivers or streams. We could, but Leona can't. Father points to my arm. Her birthmark. The magician put it there when she was born. The Cellini required it in the contract so that she wouldn't run away. I turn my left arm over to reveal the dark patch of skin on my wrist shaped like a crescent moon. My late sister, Julia, had called it the mark of the fae, and I'd convinced her for a while that I had fairy blood. I'd rub it with my thumb as if I could wipe it away. We still tried to leave. Mother says, you were too young to remember, but we smuggled you on board a ship and paid a crew member to take you to your grandparents in Milan. The ship was barely out of the lagoon when a storm came out of nowhere. Everyone died, and you were lost. And then after the storm passed, I was in a basket. A whisper of a memory rises in my mind. Lapping waves. A bright sky above. You washed back up to the gates of St. Mark's Square. You can't leave Venice. Gabriel, Theodore says abruptly, we should go outside. Gabriel nods. I put a hand on Theodore's arm. He has never been good at hiding his motives, especially not from me. You can't fight them, Tio. I won't stand for this. Not my sister. Not... He turns away, shaking his head. The room begins to blur. Everything sways gently as if I were already below the waves. I fix my eyes on a single white rose.
crushed on the ground near my feet. The Selene Lord says his race was dying. What did he mean? Father shuts his eyes. It's mostly rumors, guesses. They're an ancient, cursed race, banished to the deep waters where they've, they've lived ever since. Their numbers have dwindled, and now they want to make a new race, a mix of Selene and human, imbued with their magic, but able to walk the earth. The mother of a new race, Theodore whispers. He looks as if he's going to be sick. But why me? I ask. They've stolen plenty of people before. They wanted someone with noble blood, Father says. But a Selene could never steal a patrician's daughter. That would mean war. Besides, I think they want what they bargain for. They see it as a fair trade. They won't take any substitutions. There's a faint ringing in my ears. I've prepared a place for you, the Selene had said. So they already were watching me as a child. He had been waiting for me to grow up, to come of age. My stomach rolls and I can't finish the thought. What type of place have they prepared? Will I be kept in a cage, given just enough air to survive? Olivia steps forward and takes both my hands. The fire in her eyes grounds me. We won't let them take you, she says. I tilt my head back to keep the tears from falling. Father's right. If you don't, then we're all dead. I'm going to the library, Gabriel says. Maybe I can find a loophole in one of the legislative books. I've looked through them all, Father says. I'll look again, Gabriel snaps. Theodore turns to leave as well, but Mother stops him. Where are you going? To get some air. At the look on Mother's face, he shakes his head, then winces and touches his neck. Don't worry, Mother, I won't do anything reckless. Father's done enough. Theodore, Mother says sharply, but Theo cuts him off with a wave of his hand. Honestly, Father, how could you? He gives him a disgusted look before he walks away. Mother's brow furrows with concern, but I know Theodore's telling the truth. He won't try to fight them on his own. He's off to pace beside the canals, his answer to any problem that needs sorting out. If it were any other night, I would have gone with him. But I can't bear to watch my brother wrestle with this impossible situation. I can hardly bear the weight of my own sorrow. Someone coughs discreetly behind us. The magician and his assistant are back, standing a respectable distance away, like bystanders at a funeral. We followed the Selene to St. Mark's. They've left Venice, the magician tells my father. And you spoke to their leader, begged him to name any other price? My father asks. Olivia's hand slips into mine and hope blossoms in my chest. The magicians are skilled negotiators, renowned for helping patricians untangle themselves from foolish deals. His assistant meets my gaze, and the answer is written in his eyes. I look away. The ballroom floor no longer shines like a mirror. It's the inky black of the ocean, cold and eternal. I'm sorry. I did my best. He will only accept Signorina Leona. The magician bows slightly. I am sorry, 
he says again to me. His assistant, the one whose face had twisted in disgust earlier, now regards me with such concern that I nearly lose my composure. Come, the magician says to his assistant, and they take their leave, their footsteps echoing loudly in the barren room. Perhaps a different magician could do more, my mother says. Have you spoken to Mago Ray? My father shakes his head. I tried, but his house is surrounded by a wall of spells. I couldn't reach the door. He lives alone, doesn't allow guests, and even if I were to get inside, I doubt he'd help us. He's as unfeeling as the Selene. Beside me, Olivia begins to cry. I let go of her hand and wrap my arms around myself. A sudden, desperate longing fills me. I want to memorize the smells of the roses and the feel of the silky leaves of the topiaries. I want to run my fingers up the side of a candle, letting the wax slip under my nail, savoring the heat of the flame. I want to spill dark dirt through my fingers and feel the warmth of the sun on a dog's back. There's still time. Things might be different in the morning. My mother says at last, but her voice cracks. She twists her fan tighter and tighter. Olivia buries her face in her hands. Yes, I murmur. It's absurdly untrue, but perhaps it brings her comfort. Suddenly, all I want is to be alone in my sleeping chamber, to take off this ridiculous dress, climb into my bed, and hide from the world. I'm tired, I say, and curtsy to my parents. They watch me with the same fragile look they've always had, as if they're waiting for more. But what is there to say? I have no empty platitudes to offer. So I respond with the first thing that comes to mind. Thank you for the gala. I know it's wrong, even as the world words spill out. My father winces and my mother turns away. I've hurt them. But I can't bring myself to apologize. What's a little hurt compared to a lifetime of betrayal? We can stay with you, Olivia says. You don't have to be by yourself tonight. I shake my head. I don't know what I want. I hate the thought of sitting alone in my room, waiting for morning. But even worse than that is the idea of being surrounded by constant reminders of my fate. My father, the betrayer, and my siblings in mourning. What would we say? What comfort could we give each other, fractured as we are by lies? I'd rather be alone. Slowly, I walk across the room, into the hallway, and up the marble staircase to my chamber one last time. All right, kiddos. That's all I'm going to read for tonight. I'm sorry, it's only one chapter, but I will stop there and uh, we'll call that good. That's kind of a rough chapter, huh? The Selene coming and arguing their case against the strength of the father's contract? My goodness, kiddos. Um, we're really seeing a great lesson here about the power of your words and the power of verbal contracts and the power of uh, Father Carvati's word even 16, 17 years later that the uh, Cellini have held him to the letter of the law regarding his word. So it's a little bit fascinating, but um, there's really good lessons to be learned here. So I just want to tell you kids, 
if you ever tell somebody you're going to do something, that is a promise. And that, if you don't do it, makes you what? And sure enough, there would be horrible consequences if the Carvatis or even the, you know, the father tries to go against his word that he gave to the Cellini back when they rescued his son from drowning and, and death. So, interesting. End of the third chapter, there's quite a problem set up here. And I, I'm just wondering how it's ever going to get solved. Okay, kiddos. Um, I did want to read you a psalm, which I'm going to do right now. I came across it in a study. Somebody mentioned, um, you may hear, you may have heard, uh, may, may have heard it preached that when Jesus hung on the cross, he, one of the last things he said was, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And sure enough, Jesus did say that. It's, it's recorded, I think, in two different parts, two different places in the Gospels. And there's a lot of preaching about God turning his face from his son. But there's more to the story. God just doesn't turn his face away from Jesus and deny his son Jesus, even though Jesus does receive and accept the sin of the world onto him. He truly did that. So it turns out Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. And I'm going to read that Psalm to you in its entirety. It's almost like Jesus is giving us a little treasure map, a little hint of something super cool. And you know that Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the word that became flesh. And he ends his earthly life with the first, the first part of, of the first verb of an entire psalm. And let's just think of it this way. I think Jesus finished reciting the psalm only in a different place. And um, I want you guys to think about that. As Jesus gave up his life here on earth, he starts reciting this psalm. And of course, Jesus knows this psalm by heart because he wrote it. <laughs> so um, I'm just going to read it. And you think about Jesus dying as he's reciting the psalm and then reciting it in other places as he's truly alive in a different place. Okay, Psalm 22. This is ESV. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. 
Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. For you, I'm sorry, from you, comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Okay, kiddos, I just wanted you to hear Psalm 22. You've probably heard it before, but I think it's really cool that that was like the last thing Jesus said before he died, before he willingly gave up his spirit into his father's hands. But it was like the beginning of a whole new thing. It confirmed a ton of prophecy that he was the chosen one, the anointed one, who would lay down his life for all of our sins. And it would also um, proclaim the faithfulness of God that God, in fact, did hear him and was delivering him and that he did not despise or abhor Jesus' affliction, nor does he despise or abhor our affliction and us as we're afflicted with sin. And as you kids get older, you'll realize, oh my gosh, I am a sinner and even when I think I'm doing good, I'm being sinful and self-centered. Lord Jesus, I need you so much. This is, this is hope for you guys. This is hope for me. And this is what Jesus gives to us all as he, as he dies. Hey, everybody, don't forget about the promises our Father in Heaven has for you. 
even in your affliction, he, he doesn't turn away from you. But he says that you shall eat and be satisfied. So anyways, kids, that was something that spoke to me. The Holy Spirit spoke to me in that. And I wanted to pass that along to you. So, when you hear somebody preach in the years to come, oh, the Lord turned his face from his son in that moment. Well, I suppose that's true, and you can research that. But, on the same note, he never left his son Jesus, and he always was with him. And the Lord, our Father God, there's nothing our Father God can't do. You'll hear that God cannot look upon sin and God cannot bear to be in the presence of sin. Well, in a way, I don't think that's true because God still dialogues with Satan who is the father of lies and who is a sinner, you know, who brought sin into the world. So um, this is one of those things where I just wanted to read Psalm 22 to you and get you thinking about it. Next time you hear the six things that Jesus said while he was on the cross. One of those uh, is the first verse, first part of the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, I'm done. I will let y'all go to sleep. I love you kids very much. And I'm praying for you. And I will talk to you soon. Love you. Night-night. Thank you.